0: turn me to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. 1 John, of course, is very much towards the end of your Bible if you're in the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the New Testament. Turn just a couple pages to the left and you'll find 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to read from verses 11 to 18. We're going to look at 11 to 15, but uh, we'll read through 18 uh, this morning as we look at these passages, at this passage. While you're turning there, somebody gave me, they found it downstairs in the fellowship hall, a little ring, a butterfly ring. So if you lost a butterfly ring or if you were intended to give it to your beloved, you lost it. We know where it is. It's on the back shelf there outside the sound room. So don't lose your little butterfly ring. It doesn't fit any of my fingers. I tried. So um, we'll give it to its owner. First John chapter 3, verse 11. and in truth. A few months before he was assassinated, Martin Luther King Jr. addressed the uh, gathered congregation of the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And this is what he said. If any of you are around when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. I wonder how long his funeral was. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. Every now and then, I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That's not important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or 400 other awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. There is something in all of us that is inherent within us as human beings that recognizes the rightness of the way that Dr. King wants to be, wanted to be remembered. It's not the way that the news portrays what's important. It's not the way often that we actually live. But here is this, is this basic truth summarized for us. It's not my awards. It's not my education. It's not my career that really matters, but that I tried to love somebody. We're going to spend the next couple of weeks talking together again about the commandment of our Lord Jesus to love one another. It shouldn't surprise you that we're coming back to this again. We've talked about it before. It's inherent in the way that John wrote this letter. When John wrote this letter to the group of Christians that were in and around Ephesus and, and in the ancient world, uh, he was concerned about some false teachers. There were people who had left the church who were trying to draw other people away with them. And, and John wrote this letter to, to stop that from happening. And he says, you know what a sign, a sign of a true follower of Jesus is? Three of them he mentions. There's the truth test. That is, you have to confess the truth about the Lord Jesus. There's the obedience test. That is, you need to submit yourself to his authority. And then there's the love test. You need to love one another. Uh, and John, he, he visits all three of these. It goes back and forth between them. We just finished up talking about a large section of the obedience test. And today we come again to talk about love. Part of me thinks this should be easy to talk about, Right? love should be easy to talk about. There's, there's 10,000 songs about love. Love is so basic. It's, it's so fundamental. Is there anyone here who thinks that, that love is not important to Christianity? And yet, this is not as easy to think about, to talk about as, as we first think. One of my favorite books on my shelf in my office is a little book. It was based on a lecture series that he did D.A. Carson wrote it. It's called, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. He spends the first few pages trying to talk about why talking about God's love is difficult. See, sometimes we reduce love to just being nice. Oh, he's nice. Uh, loving someone is just, it's just being polite. It's just being nice. After the September 11th terrorist attacks, Dr. Carson delivered another lecture series and published in a book too he called Love in Hard Places. Um, it's about uh, Christ's call to love our enemies and how difficult that is. How does a Christian love a terrorist? It has more to do than with being nice to them. But what does our call look like? My goal today is I want to show you, or the title that I've given to my sermon today is Love is Serious Business. And I want to give you three reasons from the text that we just read why love is serious business. I want to do it because I want to remind you that as important as love is, it is always pressing us. It's a topic for us to consider over and over and over again. And secondly, I I want to show you that love, it might be more fragile than you think it is. Love serious business. Here's three reasons. Reason number one, why is love serious business? Because love is closely connected to the gospel itself. Love is closely connected to the gospel itself. Look at verse 11 again. It says, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Now, this sounds very much like something he's already said in chapter 2, verse 7. Look at what, back what that says. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. From the beginning of the ministry of the apostles, from the time that the readers of the a letter first heard the good news about Jesus, along with the announcement, here's who Jesus is, here's what he's done, came the command to love one another. They, they go together together. Love is a primary implication of the gospel. It's central and fundamental. As long as you have the gospel, you have this command. They go together like peanut butter and jelly, like Laurel and Hardy, like Harley and Davidson. You put them together. If you have the good news about Jesus, you have the command to love. And if you are preaching the good news of Jesus without the command to love, or if you are announcing the command to love without the good news, you have mishmash Christianity. Have broken Christianity. Now, could you can can you put those two things together? Could you explain to someone why the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and this command to love, why they go together? Why they're so from the beginning? Why they're so basic together? Well, I have I have a couple suggestions for you. Some reasons why the good news of Jesus and the command to love go closely together. First of all, I think they go together because the gospel is a message about God's love. The gospel is a message about God's love. The good news is rooted in God's own love. The Father's love for the Son. The Son's love for the Father. The Father's love for the Spirit. The Spirit's love for the Son. And, and then the God had their love for us. Remember, we read it just a few weeks ago from 1 John 3:1. Look, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's an act of God's love that he has rescued us from our sin. Why did Jesus come to earth? Why did he show us in human flesh what God is like why did he die on the cross for our sins? Why did he suffer and die for the sake of his love, 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 love? The animating power of the gospel is what the apostles first announced, the love of God, and that love is central to who God is. John will say in, in 1 John 4, God is love. This is why the message of the gospel is good news. It's good news of God's love for us a christian is someone who has been overwhelmed by the great love of god so the command for us to love one another is not surprising at all here's a second reason though why the gospel and this great command to love go together they're closely tied together because the gospel unites us together the gospel unites us together the bible calls every single person to believe the good news about Jesus. But when we believe as individuals, God brings us into his family and he unites us together. And the reality of our togetherness, it's demonstrated every week when we get together to worship him. And this is to be this community that God creates, a community of love. Almost all the images in the Bible when it talks about followers of Jesus, they're part of a collective whole, right? We're sheep in a flock. We're members of a body. We're stones in a building. We're children in a family. The New Testament can hardly conceive of a follower of Jesus who is not connected in some way uh, to a follower, uh, other followers of Jesus. In fact, This is one of the great danger signs of uh, what often precedes a precipitous fall. Followers of Jesus who isolate themselves. Things are not going well in that person's life, and they will not go well in that person's life. That's why um, we're committed to supporting organizations at Millersville University like FCA and Navigators, because... We want college students away from home, some of them, for the first time. We want them to be connected with other followers of Christ. So the gospel unites us together. So we we issue the command to love. Now third, here's a third reason why John can write this command to love one another uh, and, and this message of Jesus, why they're so tied together. Because the gospel changes our nature. The gospel changes our nature. John uses the phrase born again. He likes that phrase. He uses the phrase new life. He talks about new life. Those who turn to Jesus have new life, a new nature. God makes us again. He he restores and renews and gives us life. And this nature that we have is like him. It's a loving entity. Um, I like this image in in 1 John, uh, in verse 14. We read it a little ago. It says, It says, we know that we have passed from death to life. That's a great image for what it means to be a Christian. Passing from death to life. It's like going over a bridge or, or crossing a border or walking through a doorway. You go from death to life. That's what followers of Jesus are. They are people who have gone from death to life. Now, what's interesting is that image, as helpful as it is, Makes us think that being a follower of Jesus means that our location has changed. We were over here in Deathland and now we're in Happy Life Valley, right? Except um, what's actually changed is not our location, but what's changed is our nature. We were dead and now we're alive. We have a new nature and this new nature produces a new sort of behavior, a new frame of mind, a new love. That's why I can tell you brothers and sisters, if you're a follower of Jesus and you read these commands, love one another, you're better at this than you think you are. Some of you, you feel this just great weight of this command. Oh, here we go. Again this command to love one another. You're better at this than you think you are. And the reason that you're better at this than you think you are is because you have a new nature. You're in this new family. You have the power of God at work in you to produce this love that he is commanding. From the beginning, from the beginning, along with the good news, there has been this command, love one another, and they fit together so well. Love is serious business. Now, here's a second reason why love is serious business. Love is serious business because love can be so easily corrupted. Love is serious business because love can be so easily corrupted. I, verse 12. I love verse 12. He starts to talk. But verse 12 puzzles me. I have to tell you that, and I'll explain why. Do not be like Cain, he says, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, why did John bring up Cain here? Uh... There, there's lots of other... Well, this is the only name in the, in, the, in the letter of 1 John that he mentions besides Jesus is Cain. And this is the most direct reference he makes to the Old Testament. Why Cain, though? There are other brothers in the Bible. Um, I, I think about the other examples that he could have used. Why didn't he talk about Jacob and Esau? Or Joseph and his brothers? Or even David and Goliath? There's a hateful guy, Right? Why not him? Why Cain? Well, in part, uh, remember that, that John is writing wisdom literature. And you know, a feature of wisdom literature is that you draw stark boundaries between people. There's the wise and there's the foolish in wisdom literature. There's those who love God and those who don't love God. And John is separating. And Cain and Abel, their boundaries are pretty stark. It's a good. Good example. There's no questioning Cain and the trouble he caused and was. And there's no question that Abel was a righteous man. So Cain helps that way. But Cain is also pretty basic to humanity. He's the firstborn son of all humanity, and he was a murderer. That does not bode well for the rest of us. 1991, there were two hikers. They were hiking in the Alps in Italy, and they stumbled upon a 53 year old corpse. They gave him a name. Well, not those hikers. Somebody gave him a name Atsi the Iceman. There he was in the, in the Alps. Because of the ice and the dry mountain air, he was relatively well preserved. Atsi is the oldest intact corpse ever found. Uh, they did some research uh, with his body, some in- investigation. They found out that he was most likely a shepherd and he was a murder victim. Otzi had been shot in the back with an arrow. Now just think about this here. This is the, the, the oldest human corpse that we have found. He was not found resting in a peaceful grave surrounded by flower beds and a beautiful tomb. He, he was found in the Alps, <laughs> this is not funny, with an arrow in his back. It's terrible. What does it say about human beings that the oldest corpse we find is a murder victim or, or that, the, that the first baby born on the planet is a murderer? Whew. You can see uh, John is using Cain as an illustration of humans, humanity's brokenness by what he says in verse 13. It's kind of a little tangent he takes in verse 13. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Cain's just like the world, and it hates you. Don't be surprised by that. Cain is so, so symbolic, so um, helpful here in seeing this. Here's my real puzzle, though, about Cain, about why Cain's here. Um, so John commands us to love one another. And I think to myself, great, I got it. Love one another. And then the next thing he says is, don't kill people. And I think to myself, are they, those are my only two choices, right? Either love people, well, love people and don't kill them. Isn't there anything in between those two, right? I can think of a lot of things that are in between them. Um, I I may not love everybody the way I'm supposed to love people, but, you know, I tolerate some of them or I put up with them. I, I even befriend some of them. I enjoy some of them. I like them. Are love and murder really my only two choices here? Why why does he go to such an extreme, love one another, and by the way, don't kill anybody? Well, a few moments ago, Fred read from Genesis 4. It's interesting. Fred was given that assignment a few weeks ago, and he said, why in the world am I reading this story? I said, it'll all make sense right now. Uh, So Fred read that story. One of the things that Bible scholars have wondered about for a long time is what's the difference between Cain's sacrifice and Abel's offering, uh, Abel's sacrifice, that God looked favorably on Abel's, but not on Cain's. Here's an opportunity for me to say something that makes my children groan whenever I say it. Do you know why Cain uh, did not present a sacrifice to God that was pleasing to him? Because he wasn't Abel. Okay, just got to say that, required at this point in time. Now, why, why? The answer is it did not have anything to do with the offering itself. Some people think that because Abel offered blood and Cain just offered vegetables. That does not seem to be the, the, the point of the text. God, in fact, in Genesis 4 tells him, if you do right, you'll be accepted. Now, what John and Genesis both agree about is that Cain is angry. He's angry at God And he's angry at Abel. John makes this explicit in verse 12. Why did Cain murder his brother? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. What was motivating Cain here? Envy. Bitterness. Covetousness. And now we're getting closer to the matter and we're beginning to see the fragility of love. I have not often been tempted to murder, sometimes. Every human being has thought about it at least once. You've thought about it. That's not often my problem, though. John is suggesting here that murder started with Cain's bitterness. It started with his envy. And those are emotions with which I am all too familiar They're little steps on the path away from love and toward hate. And here's where the place where followers of Jesus struggle. There's an old legend. I heard it from Haddon Robinson, an old legend that the devil one day was crossing the Arabian desert and he came across three devilish little imps who were trying to tempt a holy man. They tried all kinds of things. They were suggesting all kinds of things. They, they, they were suggesting into his ear lewd comments that were appealed to his sense of sensuality, and, and, and the hermit barely paid them any attention. They, they appealed to his pride. Do you know how, how, many, how few people there are out in this, this wasteland being holy like, like you? Aren't you? Aren't you proud? They, they appealed to his sense of, of, of riches, wouldn't you be more comfortable with a little bit more money in a nicer place? The devil watched them try and fail, and then he leaned down into the, the right next to the ear of this holy hermit, and he said, "Hey, you know what? Your brother just got made the bishop of Alexandria." And with that, this leering hatred, hateful smile came across. Sneer came across that holy hermit's face. Now I know it's just a legend. It's not in the Bible anywhere. But isn't that how often things work in in your life? Envy is the sort of sin that trips up the holiest of God's people. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 13 for just a minute. Here, Paul is writing this hymn to love in 1 Corinthians 13. And, and look what he says in 1 Corinthians thirteen three and 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. That's where he starts. And then he says, it does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. How many of those vices that are there have to do with our comparisons? Envy and boasting are actually two sides of the same coin. Envy is how the person without often feels about the person with, and boasting is how the person with uh, sometimes reacts to the person without. And notice how both of them, these comparisons that people draw, they're so deadly to the formation of love. Now I see why John wanted us to think about Cain. He's confronting us not because he's afraid that we're going to bring butcher knives to the next congregational meeting. It's not his concern. Oh, but he knows. He wants to warn us that envy and covetousness and jealousy and bitterness are the seedbed in which murder and hatred grows. There's a difference not in kind between Envy and murder, but in degree, they both start behind the same line. One of them is a 5K and the other is a marathon, but they're on the same track. Love dies in the face of envy. Envy and bitterness will kill love. It's funny the things that we're envious about, how strange they are. You see somebody else, and you think to them, you see the guy, and you think, wow, this is a job. I would love to have that job. Man, I want that guy's job. Or you see some family and they walk into church and, and you look at them and you think, look at all those cherubic children coming into church. Man, I wish my children were cherubic like that. Wish they listened to me. Wish they were interested in coming to church like those kids apparently are. Or you see somebody and you think about huh, their fashion sense. That person knows how to put an outfit together. They look good, in the clothes that they're wearing. I don't have that sort of same fashion sense. So you think to yourself, you know, it should be fair. It would be fair. Let's trade. I'll take his job. We'll take their children. I'll take her fashion sense. Let's make that trade. That seems fair and right, except, except if you're going to trade, you've got to go the whole way. See, because along with that new job, or that job that that guy has that you're so envious of, his life, you don't see it, but on weekends, his It's just consumed with loneliness. This house is dark. There's nobody to talk to. You think all those children, they're bouncing into church just so wonderfully, and you think, "I, I love that. I love family like that. But you don't see the scars that their mother bears from the abuse that happened in her home when she was growing up. That person who's so well-dressed and you you think, man, I'd like to look like that, that'd be great. You don't know about the disease that's eating away at her joints. causes her such pain when she comes into church. See what love does? Love reduces people down to, uh, well, sorry, envy. Envy reduces people down to, to rather minor characteristics. Doesn't see them as real people. Love, in contrast, moves toward people and sees the real trouble, both the joys and the sorrows that they have. And love works to alleviate suffering and sorrow. That's that's the way love works. It's why envy and bitterness and covetousness and jealousy are so poisonous to love. One of the things I find very interesting is in Genesis chapter 4, is that the conversation in Genesis 4 is between God and Cain. Isn't that puzzling? Abel's the one who brings the the right sacrifice. Abel, God, God is pleased with Abel's sacrifice, and we don't have any record of any... God never spoke to Abel, as far as we can tell, in the text. But we have all this dialogue between Cain and God, God and Cain. God is Always reaching out to Cain and, and trying to, to help him and bring him back. What? You would almost think, you would almost think, you read Genesis 4, you would almost think that God loves rebellious Cain more than he loves righteous Abel. It's actually really good news. Is there anybody who feels like Cain this morning? Huh. God's interested in talking to you, He wants to talk to you about your envy. I want to talk to you about love. I thought when, when John brought up Cain, because I haven't killed anybody recently, that I was off the hook. But not really. The seed beds that grew up into his life, well, they're fine fertile soil in my heart sometimes too. Love is serious because It's fragile. Its opposite It's not just murder, but, but envy and bitterness too. Now let's finish our time together, shall we? We're going to talk about one more reason why love is serious business. Love is serious business because it's a clear sign of spiritual life. It's a clear sign of spiritual life. In verses 14 and 15, John, um, he uses the same logic that he's already talked about with love in verse 6. So look up at 1 John 3, 6 real quick. We talked about this two weeks ago. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now then, listen to verse 14 again. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Love for your brothers and sisters is a sure sign of spiritual life. It's a sign that you've passed from death to life. It's a sign that there's a new nature. Hatred for others is a sign of spiritual death. It's a family trait for those who are related to Cain. Now, do you see the logic here? It's interesting in verse 15 when he talks about murder, hatred and murder. It's the same logic that the Lord Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount, Remember what he said in, in Matthew 5:21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, that's an insult, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Murder and hatred go from the same seeds. When you hate someone, you wish they were not on the planet. I wish you were gone. I hate you. I don't want you here. I want you to be gone. And murder is actually taking the step of removing them. Hatred and murder, they grow together in the same seed bed. John's not saying that a murderer cannot repent and believe. That's not at all what he's saying. But he's saying that hatred is incompatible with spiritual life. Wherever you find the gospel preached and believed, you will find love. Now it's almost a new year. I don't know if you've made a list of your resolutions. Have you started doing that? Um, Let's make some church resolutions, shall we? So uh, let's put some things on our list. You can put a lot of things on the list. Let's talk about them. Um, We are a list of things that would make our church awesome, right? Uh, We're talking a lot about upgrading the facilities, new paint on the walls, new more comfortable seating in the auditorium, a higher ceiling so you could see the screen. That's not happening, but just think about it, how awesome that would be, right? How about something else? We have a, a very talented group of musicians, it's a new improved music program, an upgraded student ministry, a men's ministry that includes rock climbing and bow hunting. Now that would be fun. Something manly, a coffee bar in the foyer. That's not happening either. Do you tell me you're excited? It's not happening. Right? Let's dream about something that would really get us on the map, right? And then we pause for a minute because we've read 1 John and we think about love. It's not flashy, it's not going to land us in the newspaper. But love is really close to the gospel, its presence shows what we believe. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for this reminder about love. And Lord, we come with much to confess. Lord, you, you un, undo us when you talk about Cain because the, the, the seed beds that were in his heart are in ours too. This... Pension towards envy and bitterness and covetousness. Lord, it's where we fail. It's, It's how we fail so often. Lord, I'm thankful to you for these fine men and women, these brothers and sisters of mine, and the desire that they have to follow the Lord Jesus faithfully. Oh, I pray that you would help us all to do battle with the envy that grows. Help us to submit ourselves unto your good plans and your commands that we might not walk in covetousness and bitterness toward each other, but in love, love that reflects who you are and your great work for us through the Lord Jesus. Help us, stretch us, challenge us, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, amen.